This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we're able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. Now, after the initial weeks of the coronavirus global shutdown, we were able to set up remote interviews with many authors. Now, sound quality might be slightly different than our previous podcasts, but they still contain the same great content that you've come to expect. Today, our author is New York Times bestselling writer Tom Clavin. We spoke with him via Zoom in June of 2020 about his recent book, Tombstone, The Earp Brothers, Doc Holliday, and The Vendetta Ride from Hell by publisher St. Martin's Press. Tom Clavin was a reporter at the New York Times and has written on a variety of topics for prominent magazines like Smithsonian, Golf, and Cosmopolitan. But his series of historical books that focused on the legends from the United States westward expansion helped bring him multiple bestsellers. The research and work he did for his final book of the trilogy, Tombstone, dispels some of the myths about the OK Corral, but reveals some even more fascinating stories. We have been led to believe that Tombstone was just your typical dusty town with sagebrush bouncing through it, but it was not. It was billing itself as the San Francisco of the Southwest. It had it had hotels, it had theaters, it had concert halls. And the last thing it wanted was some kind of confrontation involving guns, but it got the biggest one in American history. And the fictionalized print and movie versions of the tales of Doc Holliday and the Earp Brothers almost pale in comparison to what he has discovered. We hear about the more true story of the Wild West in today's conversation with New York Times bestselling writer Tom Clavin on this edition of Talking with Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. Here's our host and interviewer this time, Paul Shankman. Tom Clavin, thanks very much for joining us. It's great to see you. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I wish I could be there. You know, you're, you're becoming more and more experienced with having to substitute for authors not actually coming to your neck of the woods. And I really feel bad about it because I love going out on the road. I love actually seeing people, talking to them, book people, uh, visiting bookstores, uh, Novel Neighbor, other great bookstores. It's, it's such a great atmosphere. Well, let's talk about the book. As I was reading it, in my head, I kept hearing that, that great quote from the end of... Uh, the man who shot Liberty Valance, uh, you know, the this is the West, sir, who in fact becomes legend, print the legend. Is that why you wrote the book? Because this story has been so mythologized over the years? That's a big reason for it. It's not the only reason, but it's a, it's a big reason because the first so-called biography of Wyatt Earp was called Frontier Marshall. It was published in 1932, three years after he died. And so that's almost 90 years ago. And in the intervening 90 years, starting with Frontier Marshall, of course, helped a lot by Hollywood, we've had many, many versions of uh, the Wyatt Earp story, the Earp brothers, Doc Holliday, uh, and other figures too, Bat Masterson, Wild Bill Hickok, and others. And so what I wanted to do is let's go back to what really happened on not just October 26, 1881, the gunfight, but what followed after that, because the gunfight, and you know, this probably a question you have about that, though I can get into it more, but that was not the end of the story by any means. So I wanted to go back to to the 1881-1882 period, find out what was being written at that time, what were the newspapers covering, what were the people writing in their journals and their diaries, 
And would the story, based on the factual information, be just as interesting? And that's, that's a great joy to me, that's as interesting, if not more so, than the, than the legends. Did you use materials that other authors didn't use because they couldn't find them that suddenly become available somehow, or you just dug deeper? I assume you went through a lot of stuff that others haven't seen or used. <laughs> One thing that I wanted to draw a lot from is that you know after the gunfight at the OK Corral, and as I mentioned, it's not the end of the story because what followed was it was a month-long courtroom drama, in which uh, Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday were on trial for murder and probably on trial for their lives if they had been convicted, they could have possibly been hung for murder, and. Uh, Usually because most of the stories involving Earp and Holiday and the gunfight end with the end of the gunfight, uh, you know, people, authors have not often made use of the transcripts. And, and, and there are some transcripts that were lost from that trial that were recently rediscovered and are now available at the Tombstone Courthouse uh, Monument, I think they call it. Uh, and, and so it's a lot of great testimony, a lot of great eyewitness accounts. And so when you read through all of that, and, and not that I, I don't want anybody to think if they're reading this book, they're going to read a trial transcript, because I still want to tell a story. That's still a top priority. But uh, you can make what happened, the events leading up to and the events of the gunfight more, I think, present and real, if you're drawing from actual transcripts and testimony that was taken within days and weeks of the event. Yeah, it gives it that verisimilitude that you don't get with, uh, you know, some of these other biographies and things that have, have been written about it. Um, there were a lot of herps, <laughs> a lot of herps, uh, besides the ones we always hear about and a few that are in the story very directly that we don't hear that much about. Are there still herp descendants around and did you track any of them down? Not for this book. I remember when I was working on the first book in my Frontier Lawman trilogy, Dodge City, uh, I encountered some Earp uh, descendants, but interestingly, Wyatt Earp did not have any children. Morgan Earp did not have any children. Virgil Earp had a daughter he did not know about until he was about 60 years old. You'll not find anywhere existing a direct descendant, for example, of, of Wyatt Earp. I mean, if somebody claims to be, then, then you've, got a, you've got a ringer on your hands. Uh, but uh, once Dodge City was published, uh, and including more recently with Tombstone, I hear from family members, people who are or claim to be related to the Earps in some way or form. And it's interesting because when they say, well, you know, I was always told what really happened. Well, what they were told what really happened is what did not happen or did not happen quite the way it did happen. So, uh, you know, as tempting as it might be just to say, let's say you could quote the great, great grandniece of Virgil Earp, uh, that's no guarantee that what they're going to tell you is, is, is true. Yeah, I mean, the stories had a lot of liberties taken with it over the years. I think in one version, was it a movie version, maybe where they even killed Doc Holliday at the, at the gunfight, which of course didn't happen. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I'm pretty sure what you're referring to is the movie My Darling Clementine. And I think that's a perfect example because during his last years, Wyatt Earp uh, made some extra money consulting with the directors of silent westerns in Hollywood. And one of the more prominent and up-and-coming ones was John Ford. And John Ford, when years later, uh, after World War II, when he made My Darling Clementine, he claimed, well, this is what he got directly from Wyatt Earp, so this must be what really happened. And then you watch the movie, which is a wonderful movie if you don't care about the facts. Uh, <laughs> You know, if we can put the facts aside, it's a really good Western. But, you know, you have, first of all, you have James Earp, 
who is the oldest of the Earps in that movie is the youngest, and he's he's killed in the first five minutes. Uh, then you have, uh, I can't remember, Virgil and Morgan dies even before the gunfight takes place. And just as you said, Doc, the, the sickly Doc Holliday, who's played by the robust Victor Mature, <laughs> dies in the gunfight at the OK Corral. So I think that's a perfect example of, uh, you know, how the story has been embellished, fictionalized, uh, as you say, print the legend instead of the fact over the years. And to me, it's a fun thing to go back to say, you know what, let me tell you what really happened. And for your enjoyment, you'll find that it's just as exciting as, as the embellishments. I think it's more interesting, really. So the way I see it, there's kind of three main characters in the book, uh, characters broadly used in this sense. One being the Earp brothers, the Earp family. Mm -hmm. uh, two would be the cowboys. And three is Tombstone itself. Yes. Uh, let's drill down on those just a little bit, and we can go in that order. Everybody knows, you know, Wyatt Earp. Uh, and while he was an important character in this, really Virgil Earp is sort of the central Earp in a lot of this story, right? Yes, and I think Virgil's a fascinating character. Virgil and his wife, Allie Earp, uh, uh, are, are, are a fascinating couple. And, uh, you know, there were six Earp brothers, you know, the the... Nicholas Earp and his two wives had 10 children, four daughters and six sons. Five of them gathered together in Tombstone together. It was a reunion of the Earp brothers. It's a big reason why the subtitle of the book, the first two, first three words are the Earp brothers, because so much of the book is about that relationship with the brothers. And, and you have, uh, you have Virgil, uh, and, and he was the one that managed to get them all a Tombstone. He was actually the marshal of Tombstone. Uh, it's often portrayed that Wyatt Earp was the head lawman uh, in, in Tombstone. He was not. Virgil was the head lawman. Wyatt was deputized uh, to help help out Virgil sometimes. And, uh, uh, you know, I can't help it. And I think other people might be like this too, but I, but, uh, uh, I keep thinking of, of Sam Elliott in the movie Tombstone when I think of Virgil. They're so intertwined. That movie was so wonderfully cast. So, a big part of the story is that relationship, how they were, they got together because they were going to go into business together and they were going to help each other make some money and become respectable citizens of Tombstone and be with each other, with their wives and have this herb compound uh, uh, together. And their plans went awry. And so there's a poignancy to the book that this was a golden moment for the brothers to do something about themselves and their families. And it, it, it went south. They had this sort of law enforcement thread running through the family to an extent, as so often happens in law enforcement. But the, the brothers were all very different from each other. You know, it's funny. They looked alike in a lot of ways. You know, in Allie Earp, and, and, and she, she wrote a memoir years later discussing the Earp brothers and her relationship with Virgil. Uh, she said they were like three peas in a pod, Virgil and Morgan and, and, and Wyatt. But, but they, they were different kind of personalities. Wyatt was the more reserved, uh, the, cooler, the cooler head of the brothers. Uh, Virgil was the older brother, but more gregarious, more outgoing. Morgan was the younger one with the more flamboyant, uh, the more dramatic. So, uh, but, but they all complemented each other and when they were together. And if things had gone differently... They might have succeeded business-wise. They might have. They, they might have all put down roots. Maybe eventually had children in Tombstone. Yeah, um, I know Wyatt. Uh, every everybody sort of thinks they know Wyatt, and he's this you know rough and tough lawman. But he really he ruled, so to speak, by intimidation more than any kind of gunplay. What did he 
Buffalo, I think it was called, of hitting him on the head with a gun instead of shooting him? Yeah, Wyatt Earp is often, uh, you know, when, when somebody is saying, no, give me a list of the most famous gunfighters of the American West, almost always Wyatt Earp is on that list. And Wyatt Earp was not a gunfighter. Uh, he could use a gun in the sense that, like you said, his term for buffaloing is that, you know, Wyatt was six feet tall at a time when the average American male's height was probably five five. So he was a tall man in those days. And he could, uh, rather than shoot somebody, he'd crack him over the top of the head with, the, with the, the barrel of his gun and haul him off to jail. That was his way of policing. And uh, uh, that's what makes, you know, not to get ahead of ourselves a bit here, but that's what makes the Vendetta ride, as it came to be known, Wyatt Earp's Vendetta ride, uh, uh, so dramatic and unusual uh, because that was when Wyatt Earp went out to seek vengeance for the shootings of his brothers. That was not the Wyatt Earp that anybody knew or had seen up to that point. So a big part of the Tombstone story is that dramatic turn the story takes when Wyatt Earp takes the law into his own hands, because before then, that was not Wyatt Earp. The other human character in the book that uh, I was laying out is uh, the Cowboys, which sounds like, you know, innocent, romantic. We think of the Cowboys, you know, the guy with the, the white hat. But these were guys with black hats, basically. Well, we romanticize Cowboys. Uh, certainly Hollywood has done a big part for that. Uh, and, and, and the image of John Wayne and Randolph Scott and Joel McRae. And we've had books like, uh, like Shane, for example, and uh, Lonesome Dove, and, and those that have tended to put Cowboys in a, in a good light. But cowboy, it was originally C-O-W hyphen B-O-Y, was actually a derogatory term. Basically, there's nothing else you can do, but you can always be a cowboy because it really doesn't take any skills, but just plodding behind a hundred you know, cows. And when they got to towns, when they had time off, they got to the end of the trail, they had money in their pockets, they shot the place up, they wanted to drink, they wanted to visit the bordellos. So a, a cowboy, you know, for good and bad, does represent what the Wild West was in the 1870s into the early 1880s. But the events in Tombstone were coming at the end of the Wild West. And I, I even think the gunfight at the OK Corral spelled the end of the Wild West. It was that last convulsion of violence uh, of, of the Wild West. And then we started, even the American West started looking towards the 20th century. Was it really even that wild, or at least were there really that many gunfights? It seems like we've always been led to believe that, you know, there's always a gunfight. I mean, in, in the book, one guy gets shot just for wearing a plaid shirt, which is mind-blowing. Uh, <laughs> but other than that, were there gunfights all the time, or are we just sort of led to believe there were gunfights all the time? I think we've been led to believe there were gunfights all the time. Not that there were not gunfights, and not that there was not violence, uh, because most many people wore guns. And uh, especially when alcohol was combined with people wearing or, or having guns, there was fighting. I and mean, that's one of the reasons why Doc Holliday was in and out of trouble. He was a big drinker and a hot temper, and he wore a gun. So definitely by 1881, when the gunfight at the OK Corral took place, the gunfights were rare on the frontier. There wasn't really that much frontier left. Uh, you know, we had moved, there's a term that's been used over and over again, manifest destiny, the, the westward migration, which resumed steam after the Civil War, of people heading west and settling lands and staking claims and building towns. And in those towns, they were building churches and schools and, and businesses. So Arizona was really the, the last place to go, really. After that, the next step west was California, which was mostly already settled. So by that time, the gunfight, what made gunfight at the OK Corral so shocking to the people of Tombstone 
and I think even the participants, was that it was so rare by that point to have this, this sudden violent explosion. Well, and that brings us to Tombstone, the third character, so to speak. Uh, before I read the book, I just had this picture of this kind of dusty, small, you know, unsophisticated town. But it was really, they were trying to be the San Francisco of the West. And thanks to the silver mines, they were well on their way. I'm glad you brought that up because we have been led to believe that Tombstone was just your typical, like you say, this dusty town with sagebrush bouncing through it. But it was not. And what was remarkable about Tombstone is the discovery of silver, which turns Tombstone into a, a boom town, I think it was in 1877. And by 1881, only four years later, it was billing itself as the San Francisco of the Southwest. It had, it had hotels, it had theaters, it had concert halls. It had French restaurants, Italian restaurants, it had churches, it had schools, and it bloomed uh, in the desert uh, in a short period of time and saw itself as being very civilized. The last thing the people of Tombstone wanted was to have a conflict that between basically the New West and the Old West, and the last thing it wanted was some kind of confrontation involving guns, but it got the biggest one in American history. Well, at some point, they outlawed guns coming into the city proper, which kind of led to the gunfight at the OK Corral on some level. They did. And that was not unusual for a lot of towns. I mean, that happened in Dodge City, too, when Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson were the principal lawmakers and, and, and law enforcers there. Uh, that was something that as, as the frontier moved west and then as the frontier towns became a little more civilized and tried to be more peaceful – Every sheriff, every marshal realized that if you kept weapons out of the city limits, that you were going to really lower the mortality rate in that, in that municipality. And again, especially if you kept them out of saloons because people drank and it was a lot easier when people were drunk that they would take offense with each other for something and, and start whipping out their guns. In Tombstone, yes, uh, Virgil Earp was the marshal, and one of the things he had to enforce was that you could not be wearing a weapon in Tombstone. I mean, that was really directly the legal reason for the gunfight at the OK Corral when Virgil was tasked with having to disarm the McLowry brothers and the Clanton brothers. I would be remiss if I didn't ask uh, about Doc Holliday for this reason. I, I read in the book that he met Kate Elder, his common-law wife, I guess you'd have to call her, uh, here in St. Louis. They did. Kate Elder is also a fascinating character because she was originally born in Hungary. She made her way over to the United States with her family. Her parents died at a very young age. She had to make her way west. Uh, she spent some time as what they call the soiled dove, uh, a lady of easy virtue is another euphemism. Uh, but once she met Doc Holliday and they started their journey west together, Doc was constantly moving west because of his lung ailment to try and find the right climate that would extend his life. They had a, they had a violent, contentious relationship, but they yet couldn't seem to quit each other. When they did, it didn't last very long. And she came through for Doc. I mean, there's, there's the story of when Doc killed a man in Griffin, Texas, and they didn't have a jail, so they put him in a hotel room, and they, a lynch mob got together, and, and Kate set a barn on fire, put a couple of horses under the window, Doc jumps out, and they got on the horses and escaped. And one time in Tombstone, Kate got drunk, and she accused Doc Holliday of being a stagecoach robber. But he forgave her. <laughs> These things happen in relationships. I mean, we've all been there. We've all had our partners accuse us of federal crimes. Uh, or worse. <laughs> I'm taking the fifth on that. <laughs> so, uh, so, yes, I mean, the relationship of Doc and Kate is, is a really important component of the overall story. 
Coming up in a moment, we'll continue to hear from Tom Clavin about the Old West boomtown of Tombstone, Arizona, and more of what really happened at the OK Corral. I think because of the nature of the fight, because it was a very violent explosion that was uh, uncharacteristic of the American West at that fairly late date, October of 1881. I'm not saying that there were not shootings and there were not deaths by gunfire after the OK Corral, but, but it really was the climactic moment in the American West. And I think looking back on it now from the hindsight of 140 years, we can see that. That and a reading from the book Tombstone, The Earp Brothers, Doc Holliday, and The Vendetta Ride from Hell by Tom Clavin when Talking with Authors continues from HEC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs, all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. This is the third book in a trilogy. Did you start out to write a trilogy or did this kind of happen? Uh, happily, I could say I was not insane enough to start out to write a trilogy. Uh, it was, uh, I, I started work in 2015 uh, or 14, I think it was, on a book that became Dodge City principally focus on the relationship between the young Wyatt Earp, the young Bat Masterson, and how they tamed what was known then as the wickedest town in the American West. I think if I had known at the time, in 2014, when I was just digging into the research, that I would spend the next six years basically involved in a trilogy, I think it might have been too intimidating. I don't know if I would have you know, been able to summon the courage to, to, to put that yoke on and, 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 and drag that plow. But, uh, I mean, Knockwood, when Dodge City came out in 2017, it was, it was very successful. And my, uh, my editor said, I know you're working on another book, but, you know, we have people, readers saying, is there another book like this that Clavin's working on? Which I'm always flattered that people might ask. I only planted a few of those questions myself. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's when we decided upon Wild Bill Hickok, because there had not been a book about Wild Bill Dunn in decades. And then that came out and we said, well, gee, you know, even we have this sort of arc that began, begins with the end of the Civil War with Wild Bill as the, the early prototype of the frontier lawman, that, that lone gunman uh, lawman. And then you have in the 18, mid-1870s, uh, Wyatt and, and Bat in Dodge City. Then Wyatt goes to Tombstone and that's where the, the frontier lawman saga kind of ends. After that, after Tombstone, in, in fact, even during Tombstone, you didn't have, you had police departments that were rising up. I mean, Virgil Earp sort of metamorphosized from being Marshal of Tombstone to being the Commissioner of Police of Tombstone. So the whole nature of law enforcement on the, on the front, Western frontier changed. So it turned out to do, that. we did this, decided let's complete the trilogy because there's that arc to the story from, from the beginnings of the frontier lawman basically to its, its, its conclusion. I mentioned black hats earlier. It occurred to me that by the time I got to the end of the book that the Earp brothers, you couldn't really say they were all the white hat guys and you couldn't say the cowboys were all the black hat guys. Maybe they all sort of wore shades of gray. I mean, they weren't all good or all bad as their characters are often drawn in other, in other formats. Well, that to me makes the story all the more interesting because 
uh, if it was just uh, good versus bad, not that you, there's not many, there's many fascinating stories about good versus bad, but uh, you, you know, the Earp brothers and Doc Holliday were on the good side in the, fa- in, the, in the sense that they were representing law and order, but they were not goody two-shoes kind of people. I mean, even Wyatt had spent time in prison for being a horse thief. And the McLowry brothers and the Clantons were not bad necessarily. It's just that they were representing the old Wild West that they were clinging to. They wanted less law and order. They wanted, they, 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 there was an allowance for people like uh, Curly Bill Brosius and Johnny Ringo to shoot people and get away with it. So they were not bad men necessarily, but what they were representing was a, 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 an American West that a majority of people in the new American West wanted to leave behind. So the seminal moment, of course, is the gunfight at the OK Corral, which, much like as in this interview, comes closer to the end than the beginning and is a, a fairly short thing because the gunfight was so short. I mean, we think of this massive gunfight or something as being the biggest gunfight in the West, but it, what, it was 30 seconds, I think? It was 30 shots fired in 30 seconds. Uh, you know, an example, of, I think a very good example of what we many people think the gunfight was is if you the actual movie called gunfight at the okay corral which had burt lancaster as wyatt earp and an even more robust kirk douglas as the sickly doc holiday i mean just think about that you had spartacus playing doc holiday um uh, that 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 what they had people diving behind uh, water barrels and barns and horses and the gun and jump into saloons and it was like the the a 10 minute gunfight but in reality when these four guys on one side and four guys on the other side faced off against each other in an alley that, or, or a vacant lot that was only about 15 feet wide. And the gunshots started firing. It was over in 30 seconds and 30 shots had been exchanged. That's a very intense, you know, firefight. And uh, so it wouldn't have made sense. You couldn't spend five, 10 pages describing it because it was, it was over so quick. It's a miracle that only three of the eight people involved were killed. Why has it captured the imagination so much when there were so many other gunfights, obviously, in the Wild West? Uh, I think because you have iconic figures like Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday involved. I think because of the nature of the fight, because it was a very violent explosion that was uh, uncharacteristic of the American West at that fairly late date, October of 1881. I think because it was the climactic gunfight of the American West. I'm not saying that there were not shootings and there were not deaths by gunfire after the OK Corral, but but it really was the climactic moment in the American West. And I think looking back on it now from the hindsight of 140 years, we can see that. The gunfight itself was dramatic and exciting, but I think we also have the uh, what it represented to, to, to American history. Was it even really at the OK Corral? No, the clans and McLowrys who were armed uh, wandered through the OK Corral because I think one of them kept his horse there or, or, or tied up his horse there. But the gunfight was actually in a vacant lot. But, you know, years later when they started to do reenactments, the lot was too small. <laughs> so, so they moved it to the OK Corral, which had more room for a reenactment. Well, you can't have a vendetta ride without a vendetta, and Wyatt Earp certainly had one because they killed his brother after all this, not during the fight. Uh, tell us about the vendetta ride, not only the vendetta ride, the vendetta ride from hell, as you call it in the book. Again, when the gunfight was over, there was the, the month-long uh, trial, which resulted in the acquittal of Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday for murder. 
And, uh, you know, the McLowry brothers had been killed, Billy Klein had been killed, and they had friends among the ranchers and cowboys who felt cheated out of justice. I mean, it was kind of ironic because they didn't really want a justice system, an effective justice system in the first place. And here Tombstone tried to have one and it did what was probably the right thing. Um, so they conspired uh, to attack the Earps. And the first one to get it was Virgil Earp when he was ambushed and he was not killed, but he pretty much lost the use of his left arm and he got, came very close to dying. And then you had, uh, in a, one night when Wyatt and Morgan were shooting pool together, again, an ambush from behind. Uh, Morgan was killed almost instantly. He died on the pool table. And at that moment, and there's the scene in the book where Wyatt, Earp, and Doc Holliday exchange this look in which they're saying to each other, the only way this is going to end is if we do it. And that's the vendetta ride with Wyatt, Earp, and Doc Holliday, another Earp brother, Warren Earp, and three or four other men who were supporters of Wyatt Earp all saddled up, and they went in search of the men who had shot the Earp brothers. And that's the vendetta ride, because Wyatt was going to get his revenge. He, too, had, had lost faith in the law and order system that, that he had upheld for, the, for every minute he had lived in the Tombstone. Well, and it took a while, too. It wasn't just sort of a straight, let's go get him and come back. There were interruptions and all sorts of things. Yeah, and the bad guys weren't waiting at the edge of town, either. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I did it. Yeah, come get me. You know, they they uh, they had to track these guys down. There were mountains around there they searched through. Uh, in one confrontation, uh, Wyatt Earp came basically face-to-face with Curly Bill Brosius, and they only one of them lived from that confrontation. Uh, so it took a while, and eventually the vendetta ride ended not because Wyatt was able to get everyone he wanted to find that he thought was in part of this conspiracy to shoot his brothers, but they had either left the state of Arizona or they were so well hidden that the search basically had to come over. And also Wyatt and Doc were facing arrests themselves. There was a posse in search of their posse. So uh, the vendetta ride ended basically when Wyatt and Doc said, we've got to get out of Arizona. We're not going back to Tombstone and going to jail there. Who knows what will happen to us? So they left the state and that was the end. It took months after the gunfight, the OK Corral, before the Tombstone story as we know it came to its conclusion. One big difference between the story we usually hear and the story you tell is that Johnny Ringo, one of the bad guys, uh, they didn't kill him. He just killed himself. They would have, I think, if they had the opportunity. But in fact, Johnny Ringo, uh, who was a sociopath, you know, I don't try to turn him into a good guy. He was not by any means. But he didn't seem to have anything to do with the ambush of the Earps. But yet, he was part of that cowboy element that was known to be anti-Earp. So when Johnny's body was found, you know, months after the gunfight at the OK Corral, there was the presumption that either Wyatt or Doc had gotten to him. In fact, if you watch one of the movies uh, that was made in the 1990s, it does actually have a scene in there, Doc Holliday shooting Johnny Ringo. And it's dramatic and it's cinematic, but Johnny Ringo apparently killed himself. And I think there's also a poignancy to his character, too, because... He was part of this diminishing cowboy group, and he could see that the West was passing him by. There was no future for somebody like a Johnny Ringo anymore. And uh, unfortunately, he, he got apparently just depressed and drunk enough that he, he shot himself. Uh, he saw his father shoot himself, didn't he? Yes. When the, when the Ringo family was heading West, they were camping out one night, and his father made a mistake cleaning a shotgun and, uh, and, and killed himself with it. That plus whatever was in his DNA uh, led to Johnny having a life of a lot of mental, manic, depressive turmoil. 
I imagine there are any number of things that you wanted to find out but couldn't find, but was there one thing that you were really looking for that you couldn't find, or if Wyatt Earp was still around, one question that you would have for him? I would have asked him why he didn't go back to Tombstone and try again to establish a home there. I understand his worrying that, that if he goes back to Tombstone, he might be placed under arrest, but there were honest law enforcement people. It wasn't all completely a corrupt system. And he could have put his fate in the hands of Bob Paul, who was the sheriff of Pima County. And something could have been worked out, but I think Wyatt was just so spent. I think he was just so exhausted by the violence and so feeling bad about himself and feeling bad about what happened to his family that he knew that Tombstone would always be tainted for him. And let's face it, he had, he had fallen in love in Tombstone with wife number four. <laughs> and so he had to go track her down in San Francisco where he had, she had gone to be safe until all his business was taken care of. So, uh, so she was not waiting for him in Tombstone. So he had, he had to ride in a different direction. Right. So spoiler alert, Wyatt dies. He doesn't get, <laughs> doesn't get killed, but like all of us, he dies at the, at the end of the book. Uh, and there's this deathbed scene in there where he utters something that I won't spoil for people. Uh, but it reminded me of like Rosebud in Citizen Kane. He has this one sort of word that he utters that I guess we've all been trying to figure out what he meant by it ever since. And, and all you can do is, is conjecture. I mean, who knows? But Wyatt was a complicated person. And I'm not surprised that what he said at the end was enigmatic and open to interpretation, which turned out to be a lot about his life, ended up being open to interpretation. And people went ahead and interpreted the way they wanted to in a lot of cases. But it is kind of interesting that you have Wyatt Earp, who is known as one of the gunfighters of the American West. He, he died rather peacefully in his bed, and he was two months before his 81st birthday, and he had married, been, been with his fourth wife for like 45 years. And he was, he was living, making some extra money in Hollywood. Who, who knew? But that's how one of the most iconic Western figures would end up. Yeah, timing is everything, I guess. Uh, Tom Clavin, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Tom Clavin on his work in exploring the real happenings of some of the legends of the Old West. Now to close out our podcast, we'll listen to Tom once again as he reads a passage from his book, Tombstone, a breakdown of how the battle at the OK Corral came to be. Until about 3 p.m., the day would have many moving parts and there will be many versions offered by a mixture of participants, witnesses, and gossips of what transpired, some of them at odds and other accounts being outright contradictions. With all the moving parts, if an actor on this day had said or done something differently, there might not have been the gunfight at the OK Corral. One gets the sense, though, that it or something like it was bound to happen. Those involved appear to have had a let's-get-it-done attitude. That's New York Times bestselling author Tom Clavin reading from his book Tombstone, The Earp Brothers, Doc Holliday, and the Vendetta Ride from Hell by publisher St. Martin's Press when we spoke with him in June of 2020. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking with Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going online to atcmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking with Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The host and editor of the video version of this program was Paul Shankman. Graphics by Greg Kopp and Jane Ballou. Supervising producer was Julie Winkle. Production support by Christina Chastain and Jane Ballou. HEC Media Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. The Talking With Authors podcast executive producer is Christina Chastain. Podcast audio editing by Paul Langdon. And I'm Rod Milam, your podcast producer and host. 
Special thanks to the St. Louis County Library and the Novel Neighbor. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media. You wake up, you get dressed, you prepare for a day of challenging and inspiring young minds. But maybe all you get is frustration and anxiety. You are a teacher. In the Classroom Matters podcast, we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of education. We talk to people such as Kim Bearden, co-founder of the Ron Clark Academy, Ken Williams, creator of Unfold the Soul, Teacher of the Year Beth Davey, and so many more insightful educators. Because your voice matters, your experience matters, your classroom matters. Classroom Matters with Christy Hool, a new podcast from Educate.today. Subscribe and download now.